take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This passage is the main text, the, the thesis statement. It is, if there was one passage that you might want to memorize to summarize what is Romans all about, here it is. And so we're going to give our attention to it this morning. Romans chapter 1. This is God's word, Paul writes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, would you now by your spirit illumine our minds, our hearts, that we might understand and see and believe these glorious truths revealed in your scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask the children a question, particularly those of you who are students Uh, perhaps older students, even college students, uh, have your parents ever embarrassed you? Have have they ever done anything either on purpose or maybe by accident that causes you to want to hide under a rock? Uh, I know I have as a dad. I've embarrassed my children, yes, both on purpose and by accident. But now let me ask a a different question, those of you who are, are children or students. Have you ever been ashamed of your parents? Have you ever wished that they were not your parents because of something that you've seen them do or or say? You wish that you had a different dad, a different mom. I think of the scene in the movie Hoosiers when Shooter, the, the, the character played by the actor Dennis Hopper, comes into the gym drunk and yelling at the refs in the middle of the game, and his son, Everett, you just see his face drop in shame. Now, even if you've never been ashamed of your parents, we've all felt shame at some point in our life, haven't we? We've all felt that painful feeling of embarrassment, of humiliation, because of something that we have done or something that someone else has done who is very close to us. Well, the question before us this morning in this passage, and not just to our students, our children, but to all of us, is this. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you embarrassed about your relationship with him and with his church? Are you humiliated when people call you out for your faith in Jesus, for being associated with Christianity, for following Jesus? or when they ridicule you, or, or mock you, or reject you for what you believe. And when this happens, or, or when the threat of it seems to loom on the horizon that it might happen, do you sometimes try to not to be too Christian? Right? Not to be too overt in your faith in Jesus? When spiritual or religious matters come up at work or at school, Do you wish that you could hide in the closet or hide under your desk and and not have to answer people's questions or stand up boldly for the Lord? In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul does not sugarcoat it, does he? He says, 
The gospel, Christ crucified, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross, Christ crucified, is the power of God. Jesus is the power of God, the wisdom of God. And therefore, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul is saying the same thing that he said there in 1 Corinthians 1. He is setting forth, as I mentioned, what in a very real sense is the thesis statement over this entire letter. But notice that he doesn't just drop it here in a random way. You see the very first word of verse 16, the little word for. Paul is here telling us why He is so eager to preach the gospel. That's what he's just said in verse 15. And now he's telling us, here is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to the church, you Christians in Rome, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. But then notice that the little word for shows up again in the next phrase. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? For, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in the beginning of verse 17, he uses the word for once more. Why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you see the logical flow from his his greeting, his, his introduction, his prayer report into this summary statement of the entire book? And notice it even continues into verse 18, into the body of the letter It tells us why we need the righteousness of God to be revealed. For, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the church in Rome because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. A a revelation that is absolutely necessary because God's wrath is poured out against sinners. Now, in order for us to unpack this gospel logic this morning in these two very dense verses, uh, I want us to do it sort of like you might unpack a suitcase. Right? The, 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 the last item in is the first item out. We're going to turn this passage inside out. We're going we're to peel the onion from the inside, as it were. And I want us to see three things that come right out of the text of the scripture. First, I want you to see that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Secondly, therefore, the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And finally, therefore, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. That's what Paul is teaching us here this morning. So first, see with me that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this is a very short passage, just two verses, but it's also very difficult to understand because many phrases in it could be understood in in different ways. So here in verse 17, as we begin at the end, as it were, what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? And the second question, what does it mean that God's righteousness is revealed? Well, let's start with that second question because it's a little clearer. Does Paul merely mean that In the gospel, God's righteousness has been disclosed and made known to to human intellectual apprehension, in concept, on paper, uh, in a press release, as it were. Uh, Is it 
Is it merely like a new weapon that is displayed in a military parade? Ooh, look at this new weapon that's being displayed for us. Of course, the answer is no. Look at verse 18 again. This same word revealed is used in regard to the wrath of God. And the revealing of the wrath of God is not merely a disclosing of a truth to the mind. It's an active inflicting of God's judgment on sinners. He is effectively giving the righteous, the, the, the wicked, the unrighteous over to their sin. God's wrath, we see there in verse 18, is revealed in action, in operation. And so is God's righteousness. Through the preaching of the good news, Paul is telling us, the good news of the Son of God's birth and life and death and resurrection, God's righteousness is uncovered. It is unfolded. It is made manifest. It is openly shown and brought near in a saving way, in a way that proves the gospel to be the power of God for salvation. It's like a new weapon that is unveiled and brought to bear in activity on the battlefield, you see bringing victory and deliverance and salvation in the midst of sin and misery. So if that's what revealed means, what then is this righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel? Now, through church history, several answers have been given. Is this righteousness of God the righteousness by which God is righteous in himself? Is it his attribute of justice, of, of right character? Now, to be sure... As Paul will tell us in chapter 3, verses 21 and following, the cross of Jesus certainly demonstrated the righteousness and justice of God in this sense. In that by punishing the sins of his people in the person of his son on the cross, God is showing that he's not going to save sinners at the expense of his own holy character. He's not just going to sweep sins under the rug behind the corner Right, like you children do when you're sweeping, right? Um, he's not going to do that. He's not going to say, oh, well, let's just ignore them. No, he is going to punish our sin, but in the person of Jesus Christ, his own son. God's justice as an attribute cannot be what Paul is talking about here because justice as an attribute wouldn't even be good news. Martin Luther, when he was a Roman Catholic priest in the early 1500s, before he was converted, he said that he hated this phrase, the righteousness of God. Because as he read it, he only saw it as the righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous. And Luther knew himself to be a sinner. He knew that no matter how many supposedly good or righteous things he did, it would never be enough to satisfy the righteous demands of God. When I was in sixth grade, growing up in Baton Rouge, my parents sent me to Jodine's basketball camp, the Dixie basketball camp. It was held down at Summit, Mississippi, at Southwest Mississippi Community College. It was a great basketball camp for many reasons, not least because I learned how to shoot a left-handed layup. I was very proud of myself back in sixth grade for that. But it was a very demanding camp. It was a demanding camp in that every morning they inspected your dorm room. And if it was not perfect, right, if every sheet was not made and, and the bed was not made perfectly and the clothes were not put in the drawers perfectly and the trash was not picked up perfectly and the floor was swept perfectly, not behind the doors, but perfectly swept, if the bathroom was not spotless, 
You were in trouble. They would call you out. They called it a tour. And you would either have to to do extra running at the end of the day, you would have to uh, clean the dining hall, or you'd have to entertain the whole camp after the evening program. Entertain in the sense of go up there and humiliate yourself by singing a song in front of, you know, 150 other uh, young men. The scrutiny of that camp was, was detailed. It was intense. It was unwavering. But the scrutiny of that camp was nothing compared to the scrutiny of God's righteous judgment. And Luther knew that, you see. And his great discovery that led to what we call the Protestant Reformation was that the righteousness that Paul says is revealed in the gospel is not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but it is God's free gift of righteousness by which he justifies the unrighteous, by which he declares the unrighteous to be righteous. Those sinners who trust in their son, the son of Jesus, the son of God, Jesus Christ, those sinners who trust in Jesus are declared right with God. The righteousness spoken of here is the righteousness that isn't only contrasted with human unrighteousness, but with human righteousness, as John Murray puts it. We are sinners, yes, but even our good deeds are incapable of standing the scrutiny of God's holy eye. As Paul's going to say in Romans 10, verse 3, of the Jews being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. This righteousness of which Paul speaks here in verse 17 is God's powerful intervention to save sinners, to justify sinners who stop trying to clothe themselves with the fig leaves of their own obedience, but rather trust in Jesus and are clothed in his perfect righteousness, an alien righteousness outside of ourselves, not imparted to us and infused within us so that we become better, but a righteousness that is imputed to us, reckoned, credited, counted to us to give us a new legal status before God, to give us a new and right relationship with God and to enable us to stand confidently under his scrutiny. This is the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel. And therefore, we come to our second point. Therefore, the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Again, we see in this passage, the gospel is not mere information. It's not a TED Talk. Or even a TED Talk that is the, the, the one that enlightens your mind the most and perhaps even changes your life in some way. The gospel is not mere information, not a mere message. It is a power. God's power unto salvation, Paul says. When the message of Jesus Christ is preached, as I hope I am doing even this morning, the dead are raised. Dead men come to life. Sinners are acquitted and forgiven and justified. Slaves are freed from sin's penalty of condemnation and guilt, as well as sin's power. Those who walk blindly in the pitch black of sin and misery are made to see a great light. Sinners are saved from sin and death and judgment. They're moved into a state of righteousness and life. God's word is living and active, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It is effectual. It is omnipotently powerful and operative to accomplish 
all of God's purposes. We, we saw that contrast, didn't we, in Isaiah 46. These gods made of wood and, and gold, they are carried by men. They are powerless. But our God is powerful. Paul knew his Old Testament well, as so many of his first readers did also. They would have understood that the revelation of righteousness and salvation are parallel expressions. They go hand in hand. We, we saw it again in Isaiah 46, the very last verse, when, when Isaiah writes, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Do you see how Isaiah is using those two words in parallel as synonyms? He speaks this way throughout the latter chapter of his book. But there's another place in Scripture that does this, and you know it, but you may not have sort of put the pieces together. Uh, we sing a song, don't we? Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. Do you, do you realize that Joy to the World is actually a paraphrase of Psalm 98? Listen to the last stanza of Joy to the World. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the what? The glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, his saving love. Where does that come from? Well, listen to Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Do you see what Paul is saying? In the coming of Jesus Christ, these prophecies in Isaiah and the Psalms have their perfect fulfillment. The revelation of God's gift of righteousness in the gospel powerfully accomplishes the salvation of everyone who believes. Now let's think about those little words there at the end. Everyone who believes. Think first of that word, believes. You see, the righteousness of God, Paul is telling us here, is not powerful into salvation for every single person universally. In some blanket sense, no, faith is absolutely necessary as the instrument through which salvation comes. But, but throughout this letter, Paul is going to hammer home this truth that salvation is by faith alone because salvation is by grace alone. Faith has no merit in and of itself that, that somehow binds God to reward us because we believe. No, faith is a gift of grace itself. Faith is sufficient to save even the worst sinner because faith comes with empty hands. Faith comes bringing nothing but need and, and emptiness to be filled with the, the gift of God, the gift of righteousness. And therefore, Paul is going to hammer home in this letter that the gospel is for everyone, for anyone who would believe, regardless of your cultural background, regardless of your ethnicity, your nationality, regardless of how bad you are or how good you are. No one is too bad to be saved by this gospel revelation of God's righteousness. And no one is so good that they don't need the righteousness of God to be revealed to them personally. All must believe and all will be saved if they believe. Jew and Gentile alike, there is no discrimination in God's saving purposes. Yes, as, as Paul says here, uh, salvation is to the Jew first. Right? That means that by divine appointment, the, the Jews have had and, and continue to have a priority. The gospel came to them first in time. They were re the recipients of the, the promises of the Old Testament. 
From them comes the Messiah. Paul's going to speak a lot about that in this letter. This is why when Paul went on his missionary journeys, where does he go first? He goes to the Jewish synagogues, proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the Messiah, the one foretold so long ago. The gospel is like Cinderella's slipper. It fits perfectly onto the Jewish foot because all of their hopes, all that they had been anticipating is found in Jesus of Nazareth. But it's not just for the Jews, is it? Even though so many of the Jews have rejected Christ Jesus as the Savior, yet as we'll see later in the book, their rejection, which is only partial, has meant life and reconciliation for the Gentiles, the Greeks, all of us here in this room. We have had the joyful news of salvation announced to us as well, and we too, Paul is saying, can be saved through faith. Because salvation is not brought about by our obedience to the law, whether the Jewish ceremonial law or the moral law revealed on Mount Sinai, but salvation comes by the revelation of righteousness received through faith alone. Therefore, anyone and everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ will be justified. God justifies the ungodly on account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. And I think this is what Paul is talking about in that other difficult phrase that you see in verse 17 when he says, the righteousness of, a, of God is revealed from faith for faith. What is he talking about? What does that even mean? Maybe you've scratched your head and, and puzzling over this phrase. Uh, it's possible that, that it means uh, by faith from first to last, right? Or, or that's the way the NIV translates it. Perhaps it means something like by an ever-increasing faith that we, we, we live by faith all of our lives. But I think it's best to, to understand this little phrase as a parallel with Romans chapter 3, verse 22, when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's like, Paul, why are you being so redundant there? Why are you being so repetitive? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I don't think Paul's being redundant. I think he's, he's speaking of the two truths that I was just highlighting. On the one hand, Right? God's righteousness comes powerfully unto salvation only by faith, only from believing. The righteousness of God is also a righteousness of faith. But it also comes to everyone who believes. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, as Paul will say in chapter 10, verse 13, quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. The righteousness of God is powerful to save and to justify sinners only through faith, not by any work of our own. And it invariably accomplishes that salvation in every case when a man, a woman, a boy or girl believes in Jesus Christ. And notice at the end of verse 17, Paul establishes this truth of salvation through faith for all who believe by quoting from the book of Habakkuk. Again, Paul knows his Old Testament. He knows, as he told us in, in chapter 1, the very earliest verses, the, old, the gospel has been promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Do you remember the story of Habakkuk? Habakkuk lived right before the Babylonians came and, and invaded and destroyed Jerusalem. And Habakkuk struggled. He was struggling with this reality that God was judging his wicked people, Israel, through an even more wicked nation called Babylon. Habakkuk's saying, wait a minute, God, this doesn't make any sense. You're holy, you're righteous, and yes, we're sinners, but they're really sinners. 
How can you judge us and not judge them? How can you judge us through them? And in chapter 2, verse 4, God answers Habakkuk by telling him that he was not ignorant or blind to the wickedness of Babylon, to the situation of his people. He had not forgotten his promises, but rather he declares to Habakkuk that his people will live while they wait for God's promises to come to pass. They will live by faith in humble and steadfast trust in God, the same trust that Abraham himself exhibited in chapter 15 of Genesis when Abraham's like, Lord, you've made these promises that I'm going to be a a, a great nation. I'm going to have all these offspring, and I have zero offspring right now, and I'm really old. Where is your promise come to pass? And what does God say? Abraham, look up in in the sky. Do you see the stars in the sky? Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And what does Genesis 15, 6 say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham didn't know when or how God was going to fulfill his promise, and yet he believed, he trusted. And as Paul is going to make clear in this letter, everyone who believes in Jesus, the seed of Abraham, is a child of Abraham, whether a Jew or a Gentile, because the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith, right, by faith, and it's for faith. It's for everyone who believes, and therefore the gospel is the power of salvation for believers. And that brings us to our last point. If all that's true, and it is, therefore, Paul's saying here, we must not be ashamed of the gospel We're back where we began. In light of what we've just thought through, Paul is declaring his unashamedness at the truth of the Son of God revealed in time, come to live a perfect life, die on the cross, and rise in power from the dead. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul speaks in this negative sense, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's very likely that this is an example uh, of what happens to be a very funny word in the English. It's the word litotes. Have you heard this word before? I hadn't until this week. Litotes. That's a great word. Have you ever played the game dictionary or balderdash? Use that word. But here's the definition, right? So you can win the game. Right? A litotes is an ironic understatement in, in which an affirmative is expressed by negating the contrary. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We, we use this all the time, don't we? You're not going to be sorry. What do we mean? We mean you're going to love this, right? We might say, that's not my favorite, i.e., I can't stand it. Right? Don't give it to me. Right? Uh, uh, the weather's not the best today. I mean, the, the weather is horrible, right? Or, or well, I like this one, yeah, it's not the cheapest, as if in, it's the most expensive thing you'll ever buy, right? It's not the cheapest. That, that's, we, we talk in this way. It's a litotes. Or think of Charlotte's Web, right? When Charlotte writes, some pig in the web. And Mr. Zuckerberg comes and he says, uh, it seems that we have no ordinary pig. Or, or no, and you have no ordinary pig. And Mrs. Zuckerberg says, seems to me that we have no ordinary spider, right? No ordinary means what? An extraordinary. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He, he's giving this understatement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So that with rhetorical effect, he might be saying, I boast in the gospel. I rejoice 
and this truth that the righteousness of God has been given to me through faith alone, that his power has saved me completely by grace, apart from anything that I have done. He boasts in the gospel. But he speaks this way not just to make an understated point, a litotes, but because Paul knows that it is so easy, it is so tempting, it is so prevalent amongst the church to be ashamed of the gospel, to be embarrassed by the message of the incarnation, of the person and work of Jesus, of this news that he died and rose again from the dead, that salvation isn't based on any righteousness of your own, but only the righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus This foolish message, foolish to the world, it flies in the face of all the self-righteousness that we attempt at self-salvation. It's based on the the, the merit, the the work, this most outrageous event of a crucified criminal and this crazy tale and narrative that a dead man came to life again. Like, Why would you believe this? What, What an idiot you are. How foolish you are to believe a story like this. Of course you should be ashamed of the gospel. And all too often as Christians, we are, aren't we? We want to be liked and accepted by the world. We consider our own feelings to be more important than the fact that those who are without God and without Christ in the world are staggering to hell, that hell is real. And so we hide and we conceal the gospel in our conversations in our life perhaps by not speaking it when we have the ability and the opportunity to do so, perhaps by speaking what is no gospel at all, what is indeed a gospel of works, or perhaps it's a half gospel. We're unwilling to talk about some component of the gospel, whether it's sin, whether it's the death of Jesus, whether it's the obedience of Jesus, whether it's the necessity of faith and repentance. Sometimes we're unwilling to mention Christ at work or at school. Maybe we're unwilling to read the scriptures publicly or, you know, around other people, I mean, and maybe we're we're unwilling to pray publicly around other people, lest those around us mock us. Maybe you're ashamed to talk to someone, to open your mouth and to speak a word for Jesus, to have a gospel conversation. This is the temptation that we all face. And, And so Paul opens this letter by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And if this is true, that the righteousness of God is revealed so that the gospel is powerful unto salvation for everyone who believes, then we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel either. Brothers and sisters, I want to close with a warning and with an encouragement. A warning that comes from the lips of Jesus himself in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Hear this. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Take that to heart. When we are ashamed of Christ, not just on a one-off time, but if the bent of our heart is to hide and to shy away from any opportunity to speak of Christ, if the bent of our heart is being ashamed of the gospel, then Christ says, I will be ashamed of you on the last day. That's the warning. But here's the encouragement. From Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 11, verse 16, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Jesus, to you believers, to you who believe, 
who are struggling not to be ashamed of the gospel, Jesus says, I am not ashamed to call you brothers. In chapter 11, the author writes, God is not ashamed to be called your God, for he has prepared a city for you. Do you find comfort and hope in this truth? That God is not ashamed of us because he sees us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not ashamed of us who believe in him, who trust in him, who desire to spread the fame of his name wherever we go because Jesus is our elder brother who loves us, who has given his life for us, who has given his righteousness to us. Because the gospel has revealed the righteousness of God, this gift of grace through the righteousness of Christ, the death of Christ. Therefore, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let us live by faith. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. No matter what happens to us as the church, as Christians in our day and age, let us stand firm upon this gospel bedrock. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you that you are not ashamed of us because you view us not as the sinners that we are, but as the saints that you have declared us to be, as those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for not being ashamed to call us brothers, Though we are unworthy, though we do not deserve it, Lord, we belong to you. We are your people. And we pray that you would embolden us, that you would encourage us, that you would grant to us an ever-increasing faith that we might boldly and plainly and loudly and clearly proclaim to all the world that we belong to you, that the foolishness of the gospel is the power of God for salvation because of the righteousness that has been revealed to us, that has been granted to us through faith. Oh Lord, would you be with each person here in this room? Give them, grant them, we pray, saving faith. Grant them repentance. Oh Lord, give us opportunities to boldly witness for Christ so that others might be saved, might rejoice in this gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.